Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. He's in there laughing his ass off because he knows more about the law than you do. I'm here live. That's not. I'm not a cat. My law is that legal. I will make it legal. Objection, Your Honor! Strangling the witness! I'm going to allow it. We disagree. That's it? We disagree? Well, I can't say we agree. That's how I lost my first ten cases. Welcome to Opening Arguments, a podcast that pairs a comedian with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 480. I'm Thomas. That's Andrew. How you doing, sir? I, I am fantastic, Thomas. How are you? I'm great. You know, those originalism episodes were so fun. I am the editing uh, time police on this show. And on last episode, I was just like, Andrew, no chaperones, you know, no parents. <laughs> Go wild, man. Oh, yeah. You let me have access <laughs> to the punch bowl, man. Uh. <laughs> and, and that meant just a long episode of originalism. That's what it means for, for us. But still, uh, we've got a follow up on that. And we've got interesting case being cited by both the defense and the prosecution in the Chauvin trial. That's interesting. I want to get the get the breakdown on that. And then uh, we've got a wild card, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, r- right now I'm I'm using host privileges, Andrew, and I'm saying we're getting to the wild card today, no matter what, <laughs> because uh, I guess I'll pose it in the form of a question that we all know the answer to. <laughs> Can Jordan Peterson sue... <laughs> For being depicted as Red Skull, <laughs> the Red Skull. I don't know comic books, but anyway, the, the bad Skull. guy, yeah. the rest is yeah. <laughs> in uh, the latest. Uh, what the heck is the? Oh, Captain America. Is that Captain what it is? America? Oh, yeah. there we go. I remember because Hugo Weaving is the guy in the movie. I think I saw ten years ago. Right. Indeed, indeed, he was. Good times. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. What? What feedback, what questions, what follow-ups on the originalism stuff have we gotten so far? Yeah, we've gotten a lot of really great engagement uh, on those two episodes, which I am really, really happy about. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 I'm glad we were able to do it. I'm glad we were able to find, you know, the right, the right venue. So um, let's, uh, let's tackle some of these listener questions and points. Number one. Yes, I have spoken uh, both uh, to Julia uh, and oh, you uh, have? to. I didn't know I, that. I have. Yep. Wow. Uh, and to. Um, I guess I find out the news with the rest of you, plebs. <laughs> William Bode liked a uh, a reply back, which I said, you know, I'd be happy to have a discussion with him. Um, so uh, not quite the same, but uh, oh, but okay. they they are both aware of our episodes and um you know to the extent that uh there is interest in interacting uh i am more than happy to interact and you know sort of clarify these issues so i'm excited about that and we will let you know if there are developments as events warrant the second and i i got a bunch of these and i and i do get it right <laughs> of folks who were like well you know maybe you're both right right <laughs> um well, if that's true, then I just maybe all the originalists can resign from the court and it'll be fine because it's all the same, right? So they should, <laughs> the originalists should resign from the Supreme Court. Because we're both right. 
So we agree. We're both right. If the originalists resign and are replaced by people with the normal jurisprudence, uh, then I think we'll all be happy because we're both right. <laughs> well, and the argument was, and there is a, a uh, not just a kernel, there is large textured, large grain of truth to the fact that uh, Professor Bode defined originalism mm-hmm. uh, in a way differently than I would define originalism. And so a number of people have asked, you know, well, isn't isn't the way to reconcile these two arguments that, you know, you're just defining the terms differently? And and I wanted to, to specifically address that because if you define it as broadly as Professor Bode defines it, then Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an originalist, right? Then I'm an originalist. Then, then literally there's nothing left, right? Like all you're saying is, you know, everything that is not, you know, Judges changing the law because they feel yeah. like it, right. which nobody yeah. does. You could find, <laughs> you could find such that it would not be the empty set, but it would be damn near the empty set, and that that doesn't give us a meaningful distinction. And it, it is it is not the argument that Professor Bode wants to make, right? Yeah. So it's, I'm not. Again, I've tried very carefully, you know, not to ascribe motive or intent, right? If I were if I were doing that, I would say there's a sleight of hand going on here, right? That that there is an equivocation fallacy of defining originalism as expansively as possible and then using it, right, in for two thirds or three quarters uh, of your interview in the way in which we yeah. all interpret it. And not only that, it goes the other way too, because he knows and we all know there are judges who don't identify as originalists, namely all the good ones. Uh, <laughs> and so if you are doing this little trick, you're also b- implying that they are doing something awful when they're really not. You know, like it's one thing yeah. to be like, oh, it's just a definition thing. I defined originalism as this completely normal thing that every judge does. But then people are hearing that and they're saying, well, I know that a lot of judges aren't originalists, so they must be doing this bad thing. Yep, I agree. It is why I have... Uh, and and look, <laughs> I'm trying to lay as many of my cards on the table as possible. I do this before, you know, whenever we have, if we have a, a debate or a discussion, because it, it is sort of part of my training in the law that, like, you get the best interaction when the other side knows what your arguments are, right? So very clearly, like, the first question I would ask Professor Bode if he were to come on the show would be, you would agree that say Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not an originalist, mm-hmm. right? So show me where she changed the meaning of yeah. the <laughs> Right, right, exactly. You know, and and I suspect, right, because I I would give him the out, right? I suspect he would say, like, yeah, I'm trying to summarize it in a shorthand way, and you're sort of parsing down as a lawyer, right? And 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 we would kind of move from. Oh, there. is he not a lawyer? No, no, he absolutely is. He's oh, a professor at the uh, University of Chicago Law School. So, but you know, so am I, and I oversimplify things sometimes. Right? Again, trying to give benefit of the doubt here. All right, next question that came up uh, a bunch of times. It's a really, really good point. Is what about Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan's statement that quote We're all textualists now, and that is a little bit of lawyerly inside baseball. We've uh, talked about that on here several yeah, times. But yeah. yeah, but it's a good, but it's worth reiterating. In December of 2015, Elena Kagan, certainly uh, prior to her appointment to the Supreme Court, and I think it's borne out in in cases like uh, Trinity Lutheran, for example, where you know she's fractured from the furthest left uh, position on the court. A more moderate Supreme Court justice, you know, not the ideal. If we're using that number line again, it's so hard to keep it straight because all of the court right now is in the 90s, Yeah, uh, you know, on the right wing, you know, okay, maybe John Roberts is a 91 now or what have you. Uh, But, you know, I mean, Kagan would be. I don't know, a 40. I like it's 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 hard to it's hard to pull the numbers. In any event, she was there to honor Antonin Scalia. Now, that's not a job I would have taken. Okay. We know this because that was in fact uh your you your and my very first show together yeah. when you called me up and was I like, like in uh, honor of Scalia, I've got some punishment that is not both cruel and unusual that I'm gonna do to him <laughs> in front of you all today, and he can't do anything about it. 
<laughs> Indeed, and I came on, uh, and from there, uh, you know, small acorns led to mighty oaks. But <laughs> so she's at a speech. Uh, she's giving the keynote, uh, the Scalia lecture at Harvard Law School to honor Antonin Scalia. And then she's describing his influence in the legal profession. And in the same way, like you and I disagreed in that uh, that first Scalia uh, non-honoring, which I said, yeah, he was a brilliant guy. And you're like, no, I think he's just an idiot. Um, well, I don't think he's an it, idiot. But. <laughs> and, and, and that's not fair. That's not fair. Right. Uh, you, but you disagreed with my characterization of his intelligence. She paid him a compliment and she correctly described that he was an incredibly, in, he was still alive at that point, but mm. she correctly described described uh, the biggest influence that Antonin Scalia had 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 at that point uh, over the Supreme Court. And let me unpack that a little bit. This has actually changed in my lifetime practicing as a lawyer. Back when I uh, just got out of law school and I was clerking for the Maryland Court of Appeals, right, our state Supreme Court, it was customary for judges right and left, including in particular my judge, to ask for legislative history as part of the background of understanding a statute, right, understanding what that law meant. And what legislative history meant was drive down to Annapolis, go into the microfiche room, and pull up transcripts of the actual arguments, the actual debates on the floor of the legislature over the bill. And from there, you would then say, look, the people who wrote this intended this bill to do X. Okay. And and this method of legal analysis is often summarized under the, the, the word purpose, right? What's the purpose of the statute? The biggest contemporary defender of the purpose approach uh, is UVA professor uh, Richard Ray. And I'm going to link one of his uh, law review articles in the show notes. It's called The New Holy Trinity. It's super fascinating. And the point is, pre-Scalia, it was possible to look at a statute, have that statute be crystal clear on its face, and nevertheless, as a judge, say, right, but I want to know what the people who wrote this thing intended for it to mean. Give you, I, I could go through the Holy Trinity case that they talked about, which was uh, a statute that prohibited entering into a contract for a non-citizen to immigrate uh, and work within the United States. Right. And that's mm. what the law said. And then a church <laughs> hired an immigrant to come from overseas and uh, pastor at their church. And the Supreme Court said, right, right, right. But, but we all know this law was not meant to apply to ministers. It was supposed to bar, quote, cheap, unskilled labor. Oh, <laughs> quote, right. So it doesn't apply to that church's contract. Right. Um, and, and, and you're, oh my God, like is really, really illustrative here. Uh, and, and again, remember, my judge was a very, very conservative judge looking to purpose or not looking to purpose is not a lefty or a righty tool, right? It's a way of analyzing the the text of the law. And one of the things that Antonin Scalia has succeeded in doing is today, I think very, very few judges approaching zero would say, if a law is crystal clear on its face, then it could be made ambiguous or otherwise reinterpreted based on what the people who originally passed the law intended for it to do. And that was not the case 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and a really, really good example of that we've talked about on the show uh, that, that maybe goes the other way is Title VII, which says no discrimination on account of sex. Um, some of the earliest landmark cases, particularly in uh, California, were claims of discrimination by men under Title VII. And the earliest uh, judges sort of split two ways. They said, right, we get it. It says no discrimination on account of sex, but this was meant to protect women. It was not meant to protect men. We're not going to entertain challenges by men under this statute, even though it clearly says no discrimination on account of sex. Today, that view is like I said, an exceedingly small approaching zero view of how to interpret a statute. And so when Justice Kagan said, we're all textualists now, 
That's what she meant. She meant when the text is crystal clear, we do not look for reasons to depart from it uh, that are grounded in other considerations. Now, when the text is not at all clear, right, then Justice Kagan continues to apply the same methodology I described in, uh, uh, you know, in our two episodes. So that's the right context for that for that comment. And again, it sort of shows the difference between the kind of thing you would say uh, at a lecture, you know, at a, at a three cheers for Antonin Scalia lecture uh, versus what you would put in your opinions. Right. She would never have put that in, a, in, a, in an opinion because. It's not true, right? It's 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 a it's a hyperbolic statement meant to describe somebody who was a a, a singularly influential Supreme Court justice. You know whether you like it or not. So that's the Kagan bit. <laughs> Opening arguments is brought to you by Paint Your Life. I love Paint Your Life. I talk about this every time. The painting that I have of Lydia. And our beautiful daughter, Phoebe, on the beach. It's one of my favorite things that we have in our house. It will be on any wall, wherever we live, as long as we are alive. It is that beautiful, and it's that meaningful. And if you have somebody, wife, grandparent, maybe your parents, uh, if you have somebody you're shopping for the perfect birthday, wedding gift, anniversary gift, I highly recommend Paint Your Life. Here's how it works. You get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. You choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. The user-friendly platform lets you order a custom-made, hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes. It's a quick and easy process, and you get that hand-painted portrait in about three weeks. You send them any picture or even combine photos to make the perfect painting. At paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word OA to 64000. That's OA to the number 64000. Text OA to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com slash terms. And one more time, text OA to 64000. I was having trouble tracking who cared about what side of that argument, because on one hand, it's about intent, and you would think originalism is about what did they intend at the time, but that on the other hand, it sounds like you're saying he has made, I mean, the comment is like he made everybody textualists. I don't, I don't, I have to admit, yeah. I don't totally understand what went on there. This is really crucial to sort of the next couple of comments, so I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought it up. Remember that for a textualist like Scalia, it is not what is subjectively going through the heads of X number of legislators who vote in favor of this. It is what was, uh, for Scalia, the original public meaning of the words of the thing that they wrote. Right. Okay. And and so what what that leaves open the possibility for, uh, and and Scalia himself has written about this, is I am a state legislator, or I'm a founding father, right? Well, you know whatever, and I write a provision into, I vote for a provision that is written into law, uh, or the Constitution, or whatever, and I intend subjectively for it to do a thing that it doesn't say. Okay. Too bad on me. Uh, elect smarter legislators is what Scalia would say. What it means is what it means to, at the time, to the general public, to their understanding uh, at the time that that law was passed. Uh, so it, it, it's not it has nothing to do with the subjective intent of the people who voted in favor of it. Now, as you point out <laughs> and and uh, you know, as we talked about at at some length on on our originalism episodes, what people intended is often very very good evidence of what the words meant, right? Mm. So, you know, it it I I think it I think it shows the difficulty in making these kinds of hairline distinctions. But um, but that's how I'm steel botting Antonin Scalia, and that's as much as I can do on that, by the way. That's where he would draw that distinction. Next up, 
a number of folks, uh, and and I, I I always forget that not everybody has been with us since the very beginning. <laughs> um, so this is a good time to, to wait plug a minute. These there are people episodes. who haven't listened to all 480 episodes, including all the lambs and the <sighs> bonus materials. And uh, yeah, I mean, there should be a law against that. <laughs> I know. I mean, we you know we uh, no, but a bunch of people said, well, isn't the strongest argument against contemporary originalism? You know, I went with uh, uh, Janice versus Ask Me. Isn't DCV Heller a, a much stronger example of that? A hundred percent. Yes, it is. Right. Like, could be. <laughs> uh, we ought to we- do two episodes or more about that in 2016. Yeah, <laughs> we should. <laughs> okay, we're gonna so, have yes. our time machine. <laughs> episodes 21 and 26 of the show from uh five years ago now go through the history of that the nut graph is prior to 2008 no federal court had ever overturned a federal law regarding the possession of firearms as violating the second amendment and this was a challenge, a manufactured astroturfed challenge to a decades old ban on handguns in the District of Columbia, right? Something that people had been living under for generations. You, you know, you just knew you were not allowed to have a handgun in D.C. And that became the landmark case that turned into D.C. versus Heller and invented uh, the contemporary NRA backed quote, Ugh. understanding of the Second Amendment out of whole cloth. They had to do it in D.C. because the Second Amendment had not yet been incorporated to the states as of 2008. So, you know, if you're sitting there thinking like this has been a, uh, you know, a, a, a key individual right that has been at the bulwark of no, yeah. it hasn't. Right. It literally we did not know that it applied to state law until a case called McDonald versus Chicago in 2010. Right. Eleven years ago. So, yes, those are very, very good arguments against originalism. It's just that we'd already covered them. And then finally, uh, I I included this. I actually think that that your question probably made this a little more clear, but um, Matt Welland uh, wrote in and said, I'm a software engineer, and for most programming languages, counting starts at zero instead of one, which got me thinking, and you might anticipate where this is going. The one example we held up was uh, the president must be over age 35, right? <laughs> um, what what if, a, as a society, we collectively decide to start counting from some other number, right? Like, a, we just, you know, count your birthday, uh, you're 100 when you're born, right? And he says, look, this is obviously a stupid hypothetical, but, you know, for argument's sake, if someone was counted as 100 when they're born and we count upward— would an originalist in that situation be happy with a newborn child running for office? Hmm. And here, again, I wanted to use this um, to uh, make sure we're steel botting the other side and sort of carefully define it is the original public understanding of the words at the time that they were enacted. right? And so if the words later come to have different meanings then that's an area where I think Professor Bode's like, even his not the same items is is kind of fair, right? It's like, okay, yeah, we we get it. It meant 35 years old had a particular meaning in 1789. uh, And now it doesn't because we're all counting in, you know, hexadecimal, right? Or whatever. Uh, But uh, but we would still use- Is that a place where you're too- theories would kind of converge and you'd both be like, yeah, 135 then. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Under okay. modern, you know, it, it, and, and our reasons would be different, right? We would say hmm. effectively, uh, well, I don't, I shouldn't even say our reasons would be different. I would say the the way in which, right, you go back to, you know, we Gargnax the Zorbleen, right? You would say, okay, Gargnax meant what we would call 2F7 today, uh, <laughs> and they called 35 back then, um, and you know, yeah. and then you would still apply it. So I don't think that that is a valid criticism. And again, it, it, it hinges on that sort of knife's edge of the difference between a, a lot of different things and original public understanding of the text. And, and I think that goes to illustrate – the reason I, I, I went through some of these sort of you know edge cases and the like is – I think the fact that the word text was not mentioned, as far as I can tell, in the original interview it is one of sort of the, the, the overarching problems I have with it, right? Mm. Uh, because it is so key to what the originalist 
argument is about, right? It is, you recall, we read those definitions from Scalia and from Bork that said, look, the only thing that you can call the law is the written text of the law. And that is where so much of the substantive disagreement takes place. No, we can, we call lots of other things the law. You might not agree with that, but you know that goes a long way towards explaining the differences in approaches far more so than what was described. So keep it coming. Obviously, love talking about this. I think you're going to get a lot more, you know, why originalism is bad and you should feel bad in the future. Uh, and uh, and we had a lot. Yeah, of along the lines of that last comment, there was a good I was trying to make this argument at the time. I'm not sure I quite have it outlined yet, but in my mind, there's something to do with like the the ongoing consent of the people being governed and the, how they're understanding the law. And then all of a sudden Scalia comes along and is like, nope, actually the, it was this way all along. Cause someone pointed out in the Facebook group, like, wouldn't we just, if we were going to pass an amendment, like if, if, if tomorrow we're, all, well, I guess this is already true with the Supreme court, but, but if, if tomorrow it's like, sorry, everything means what they meant at the time, what the words meant at the time, then we would have to pass amendments, but then the constitutional amendments, a lot of them would just be the same exact wording because we all think it means something now, you know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like that, I think that sort of, I don't know, I know that I have it entirely right, but that sort of illustrates the absurdity of this. Like we would have to pass an amendment that has the exact same wording because we all think that means something now. It doesn't matter what it meant back then so much. I think there's a lot in that objection. Um, and and where I would begin is actually something we cut for time from part one, uh, and that is basic social contract theory, right? And and the idea is among social contract theorists, right? Like we talked about, you know, is there a concept of rule of law? Do you have an underlying moral obligation to obey the laws out of something other than self-interest, right? And one of the justifications for that is the, is the idea of, of social contract theory. And contract theorists are sort of all over the map on whether it's like, oh, all I have to do is show that like hypothetically 800 years ago, you know, your ancestors would have agreed to X, right? Yeah. That's, you know, sort of more Hobbesian contract versus a more Rawlsian view of the social contract, which is like, no, this is an ongoing process, right? I want to know if ongoing- you meant Hobbesian or if there's someone named like Hobies or something. Yeah, What's no, Hobie? no, it's a, yeah. Is it pronounced Hobbesian? I have often heard it that way. Oh, um, wow. You can say Hobbesian as well. But, okay. Um, so. Just now my mind is blown. Look, I've I've been embarrassed by my past pronunciations. I think uh, it's fair, fair <laughs> so play have the I. other way. Yeah. So have I. So, you know, break out the thesaurus. But, uh, yeah, I write, will, us, I will, write us in on Hobbesian. I want to know. I will defend Hobbesian. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so if you believe that, that the social contract justification requires some ongoing back and forth, right? A, a reflective equilibrium between the citizenry and their representatives, um, as I think most modern political philosophers would, then that has the, the implications that you've described. It also has the implications of, right, like why we generally think a free society can't prevent you from leaving, right? <laughs> like, you know, because there's this notion of it's not just theoretical consent. It's actually some level of real ongoing consent. Right. Like and mm-hmm. at minimum, like y- y- you got to be free to get out um, if you can't leave, then, you know, how can we infer that you're here voluntarily? So I think that's an excellent, excellent point. And I would love to spend another hour talking. Yeah. About it, but you know. I was going to say, you people wouldn't believe what we had to cut from Andrew's notes. He's like, OK, you got to start off. Where do I start? We're all actually energy. It's the energy between <laughs> it's the bonds. We're not actually. Ah, no, I can't go that far back. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot so of it all deep begins diving. 13 billion years ago. <laughs> If you could see and taste this bacon from Moinkbox.com, I guarantee you would order it right now, but uh, I'm the one seeing it and tasting it. Well, I mean, not right now, but I have. It is delicious. It literally is the best bacon I've ever had, and I've had a lot of bacon, let me tell you. You have got to get Moinkbox.com. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, all direct to your door. They source from family farms and help family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. They're animals. 
raised outdoors. Their fish swim wild in the ocean and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. That's really a big deal in terms of like chicken that are pumped full of salt and water. Moink stuff is really, really good. So sign up moinkbox.com slash OA to get a year of ground beef for free. And then you get to pick whatever meats you want delivered with your first box. You change what you get each month and you can cancel it anytime. The moink meats that I've had delivered are really, really high quality, tasty stuff. Their chicken tastes like chicken, not like nothing. Their bacon is literally the best bacon I've ever had. It's it's amazingly good. And like that dude on Shark Tank, they put this in their copy, but like I get it. The dude on Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary was also like, wow, this is the best bacon I've ever tasted. So what I want you to do is join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash OA right now and listeners to our show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste. Uh, but limited time offer while they're sponsoring the show. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com slash OA moinkbox.com slash OA. And look, their stuff is so good. I am actually reading oink oink. I'm just so happy I got moinked. And uh, I think you will be too. Down. Down. Okay, Andrew, why is Graham v. Connor being cited by both the defense and the prosecution in the Chauvin trial? Because it is the first time that the Supreme Court clarified what it meant for a police officer to use excessive force. And you might be looking at the citation going, um, 490 U.S. 386. Yeah, this case is from 1989. Hmm. So... Let that one sit in for a little bit. It is also not a a criminal case. It is it's a civil lawsuit. It is a section 1983, 42 U.S. 1983 claim, because under that statute, when a state actor acting under color of law violates your civil rights, you can then sue them for damages. Right. So we've all heard about 1983 claims. We've talked about this. I think we did a dedicated episode on the show, but you can get civil damages against state officials who violate your civil rights. So the question was, uh, in this case, were the plaintiffs civil rights violated by the police? So then you have to make that determination. And the, and the Supreme Court clarified the rules. And again, terrifyingly recently. So here are the facts of the case. On November 12th, 1984, Dethorn Graham uh, was diabetic. He felt the onset of an insulin reaction and asked his friend, William Barry, to drive him to a nearby convenience store so he could purchase some orange juice to counteract the diabetic reaction. Barry drove him to the corner convenience store. Graham walks into the store and the line is 12 deep. And he's like, all right, screw that. I'm leaving, asks his friend, uh, just drive me to a friend's house that's right around the corner and I'll drink something sugary or eat something sugary at my friend's house. Now, a police officer named Connor watched Graham enter, kind of look around and then leave the store. And the officer decided that he was going to follow Graham, that Mm. there was something wrong about this. So, um, I'm going to ask you a question that I could not answer from reading the text of this opinion. And I think you know what that question is going to be. It is, what race is Graham and what race is Connor? I mean, obviously, black and white is what you're probably looking for. But oftentimes, you know, plenty of non-white cops also racist as well. Yeah, uh, black and white is what I was looking for. It is the correct answer. You would not be able to tell that from the opinion. The opinion wow. is 100 percent silent. So that's not relevant information to them. Yeah, not at all. Okay, not 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 Good relevant. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's totally yeah. <laughs> irrelevant to the case. Um, I'm sure. Let's go back to what was happening. Half mile from the store, Connor 
pulls over Barry. Remember, that's the friend. And Barry says, look, like Graham is suffering from a sugar reaction, right? The officer says, uh, no, uh, I watched you come in and case this joint. You're going to sit and wait here in the car uh, until we find out from, you know, our comically oversized walkie talkies uh, what happened back at the convenience store. So then Connor goes back to his patrol car and calls for backup. That is an undisputed fact. Um, Graham, suffering the onset of his diabetic reaction, gets out of the car and runs around the car twice and then sits down on the curb and passes out. I have made a look at this. I sent a a message to my dad who who has some diabetic issues. I don't know if that's appropriate diabetic behavior or not. I'm sure our listeners can can uh, can weigh in. But but that's what that's what Graham does. Then backup shows up. And one of the officers comes over, picks up Graham, cuffs him tightly, and all the while, like, the friend is going, look, just get him some sugar. He's diabetic. He's going to pass out. He's having a reaction. The officer says, quote, I've seen a lot of people with sugar diabetes that never acted like this. Ain't nothing wrong with the MFR, but he's drunk. Lock the SOB up. Some of those words have been clown horned at the Supreme Court. Oh, they got a Supreme Court clown horn. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder whose job that is. It's actual clown. <laughs> Brian, Brian actually moonlights <laughs> the Supreme Court in the 19, 1980s. Several officers then lifted Graham up from behind, carried him over to the car, and don't love this verb, placed him face down on the hood. Graham now is in and out of consciousness, uh, and he says, look, um, if you get out my wallet, I have a decal on my license that shows that I'm a diabetic. In response, and and he you know tries to squirm to get you know get his wallet. In response, he's he's handcuffed and face down on the car at this point. Right. One of the officers told him to shut shut up, and shoved his face down against the hood of the car. Four officers then picked up Graham and threw him headfirst into the police car. A friend of Grant right, has now caused a community you know, response. So a friend, maybe the same friend that his house he was going to, has brought orange juice over, brings it over to the car and says, look, just let me give him some orange juice. He's cuffed. He's in the backseat of the car. Officers refuse to let him have it. Finally, Officer Connor receives a report from the convenience store right now coming back over the telegraph wires because it's 1989 that no, I, Graham didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing, you know, there was no holdup. There's nothing missing. There's nothing wrong. You just like tracked down a black guy who was having a diabetic attack and the officers drove him home and released him. Graham in this entire arrest suffered a broken foot, cuts on his wrist bruised forehead, injured shoulder, and developed tinnitus, a loud ringing in his right ear that continued uh, five, you know, to this day as of 1989. So five years into the future, probably for the rest of his life. So the question was, did the use of force by a police officer in that case constitute excessive force in violation of your constitutional rights? Hmm. And if so, which ones? Boy, tough case. Um, Yes. The answer is we don't know from I know I I do know the ultimate answer to this, but we don't know from this Supreme Court opinion. What this Supreme Court opinion did was clarified the rules because the test that had been used at the Fourth Circuit was a subjective test. Okay, Um, what the Fourth Circuit said was you, Graham, have to prove that they that the police used force, quote, maliciously and sadistically for the very purpose of causing harm end of quote wow. that's not a that's yeah that's not a great standard so the fourth circuit said and you know you can't prove that right like this was they weren't malicious and sadistic they were i, I don't know uh cruel but usual right like whatever right that's what the fourth circuit said and the supreme court overturned that finding they said look The right that's being violated here is your Fourth Amendment right to be free against unreasonable searches and seizures, which, by the way, they're correct on that, right? Like that's that's how you analyze when the police are exercising dominion over a criminal suspect. It's a Fourth Amendment question. And they said, look, the word unreasonable does not have a subjective component to it. Here's how the Supreme Court put it. They said, as in other Fourth Amendment contexts, 
the reasonable the reasonableness inquiry in an excessive force case is an objective one. The question is whether the officer's actions are objectively reasonable in light of the facts surrounding them, without regard to their underlying intent or motivation. An officer's evil intentions will not make a Fourth Amendment violation out of an objectively reasonable use of force, hmm. nor will an officer's good intentions make an objectively unreasonable use of force constitutional. Makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and by the way, even before I show how that's applied, I think you now see exactly why this case is being cited by both sides. Because the from from the prosecution side of it, you're saying, look, we're not trying, nor do we have to prove that Derek Chauvin hated George Floyd, uh, that he was trying. All we have to prove is that this was not an objectively reasonable way of restraining someone that was in police custody and control. Are you saying there's like this is unclear whether or not that's the standard? Like we don't know. Oh, no, no. It sounds like that ought to be the standard. It, it, it is the standard. It remains the standard to this day. I'm going to tell you the, uh, the the Negatron side, but first I've got, you know, let me get through all okay. of it. So how do you figure out whether assert, whether this restraint is objectively reasonable? And again, I, I just want to point out, I love doing this after we've did a little bit more on, uh, on originalism, because this is the kind of mainstream decision that we got up until 20, 25 years ago, even though this opinion is written by William Rehnquist, who flirts with some originalism, right? Very, very conservative guy. But basically, the answer is you balance a bunch of factors, right? Because it would have done no good to say, like, well, what would the framers have thought about this? Because you yeah. didn't have, like, cops in 1791 the way you did today. <laughs> you didn't have Terry stops, right? Like, that that is the stop and frisk. Right? Like, it just it, – it would have been such a laughably stupid inquiry yeah. to say, right? You know, Instead, what you say is, okay, the, the Fourth Amendment protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. How do we balance those interests? And here's what the court said. The test of reasonableness is not capable of precise definition or mechanical application. It's a slap through the future at Scalia. <laughs> well, he's on the court at the time, so it's a slap across mm. the uh, across the aisle at Scalia. Its proper application requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each particular case, including, and, and I'm going to number these here for convenience, one, the severity of the crime at issue, two, whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others. Three, whether he is actively resisting arrest or four, attempting to evade arrest by flight. And that's not an exhaustive list, but that list is still used today. It's still in police training manuals in terms of how you figure out what level of force is appropriate to the situation. So put all that together and you were sitting there thinking like, but well, this sounds like a pretty good case. It sounds like it got rid of a terrible standard, right? A, mm -hmm. a, a high bar and replaced it with a, an objective standard. And that's true. Graham's lawyer, for example, to this day, right, can, says uh, that this is the most important civil rights case of the latter half of the 20th century. However, <laughs> the question of how you balance those factors um, was described by the Supreme Court this way. The framing mechanism, right? How how you you determine is whether the force was appropriate under the totality of those circumstances, right? Using the factors that we just described, at the moment force was used, without twenty twenty hindsight, and here's these are the words from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. Yeah, yeah. and so now you see where we are, and in particular, why over the past thirty years. All of these cases, you will hear the police officer describing, yeah, this is life, why I was afraid but, for yeah. my life. This is why I was exactly right. But that's going to be tough in this case. I had my sunglasses on my head, didn't even move, weren't even, you know, like they're just sitting. I feel like a new court test could be if your sunglasses stayed on your head the whole time you were doing the murder, then you weren't really in that much danger. You joke, but... A 1990 Supreme Court, right, could could very well have articulated that as one of the factors of the totality of the circumstances, right? Like how how much and, you know, they wouldn't have said like, you know, 
do you have your sunglasses on? You know, they would have said, how much did you have to deviate from, you know, your normal practice? Right. And and when the answer is zero, like that should be a really strong argument against he it. He couldn't have looked more casual as he Correct. was doing the murder. Co- like Correct. really couldn't have. He may as well have been plate spinning while he's doing yeah. it. Like, come on. <laughs> I think that's right. And And so at the end of the day, I think that this legal standard will favor the prosecution. But this is why both sides are citing to the case. Right? Mm. And so the prosecution is citing to it saying like, yeah, we got to look at the totality of these factors and the totality of these factors amounts to zero risk to you or as damn near zero as you can possibly get. I want an extensive line of questioning about those sunglasses. Well, I guess he won't. Will he ever be on the stand? Probably not, huh? But I'd be I like, sure would still have put those? him on the stand. Yeah. How are they looking? Are they scratched at all? They good? They still they're perfect? Those sunglasses that were on your head the whole time? You were never uh, in danger in any way? Yeah, yeah. Those look beautiful. They're not a scratch on them. Enter into evidence. Those sunglasses, they're pristine. They're better than mine. <laughs> I chuckled there, but I, I absolutely think that that's a, a valid argument and it is a valid technique. Uh, and and I would like to see the prosecution do that. What they need to do, What <laughs> this goes back to, you know, we talked about this in my um, kind of sad episode of revisiting Alan Dershowitz and the concept of testifying, which was all, I, literally the only thing Alan Dershowitz spoke on until the moment the, the, the check cleared uh, for being on the O.J. Simpson defense team. I, I really very stupidly believe that Alan Dershowitz cared about this back then. But he would talk about how uh, he coined the phrase test lying, right? It was because of these manuals, police officers are trained to give answers that respond to the factors that have been outlined in the law that exonerate their conduct. And um, we saw even a little bit of that uh, in the Lord Awful movies of Your Honor, right? Like where, <laughs> you know, the, the classic of like the police officer at the very beginning. I mean, the, the entire thing goes off the rails in about eight seconds. But uh, but the police officer is testifying like, I absolutely saw the defendant hide drugs on their person uh, and I could smell pot. And, you know, I, and, you know, and these are just the kinds of things. Again, it's why I love the the Dershowitz characterization as, as testifying that like. Nobody really thinks that 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 that's the case, right? Like nobody thinks that uh, police officers are trained bloodhounds and, you know, they're like, I, I could definitely smell that, you know, sealed Ziploc bag of weed. Like, no, no, you couldn't. Right. Yeah. So the sad conclusion to the story, as you, you, you probably guessed, was um, that. This was remanded back down to the trial court. The trial court once more uh, said that Graham was the victim of unreasonable force. Uh, That was appealed to the Fourth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit reversed and said that the use of force in this case under the factors uh, articulated by the Supreme Court uh, was reasonable. So Graham never got a dime from the city. What? um, you know, today his family is active in lobbying with respect to police brutality causes. Oh my God, so, that is insane. Um, yeah. Nothing um, for all nothing. that. Nothing. Wow. Um, so that's the sad ending uh, to that story, but that is the significance of the seminal case in this area, Graham versus Connor, and why you hear it being cited on both sides. I actually have a little bit of faith in this case going the right way but we'll we'll see actually no we we talked about in the q a i want to i want to ask you real quick we have, a, we have a minute i said this on the q a last night the patreon q a or sorry tuesday i feel a little bit optimistic about this case and i grant that you know it's because we've heard from the prosecution so far um but it just feels like the evidence is overwhelming that even people who are kind of blue lives mattery in the jury might be able to see that like, okay, this was just not reasonable behavior. How are you feeling about this case? Are you willing to predict anything? I share that view with you. I, I I think the prosecution has, and there are things that I have nitpicked it, but you know, look, like if one of these prosecutors, you know, one of these prosecutors watched one of my trials, right. They would, they would nitpick. You're, you're never able to, They'd be yeah, like- <laughs> right? sure. Yeah. I mean, you're never able to articulate everything that's going on in your head. The prosecution has done an excellent job. And like I said, on the Q and a generally speaking, 
even though right at at this point in 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 the trial your defense theory should be somewhat visible in your cross-examination of the witnesses and that's just not the case right like it is it is very very difficult you know to see them building a comprehensive case of george floyd was a dangerous pill popper but also like fragile and ready to die of an underlying heart condition at the next month like it just that the the argument wasn't great from the start and i don't see that um that it that it's being built up that way during the trial so i i I share your cautious optimism, and we'll see. This podcast is brought to you by the X Chair. I love my new X Chair. I am sitting in it right now, and you folks probably know I spend a lot of time sitting in a chair, whether it's recording OA, streaming, editing, and I have never had an office chair that looks and feels so amazing in my entire life. It's so comfortable, I can sit for hours, and I have to, and never feel uncomfortable. The secret is not only their patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, but now, thanks to their new XHMT technology, I can also get heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting in my desk. If you're someone like me who has to spend a lot of time sitting down in your office chair, you might want to try this XHMT stuff. It delivers heat and massage technology right to your core. It increases blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. These are all perks that make working from home or the office a joy. It even has four different massage modes and a fast warming heat technology for when I'm sore. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. So the X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchairoa.com now. That's the letter X chair and the letters o and a dot com or call 1-844-4x-chair x chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 dollars a month go to x now and use code x wheels for free x wheel blade casters that's x go there now we will see. Well, we have just enough time for a fun uh, wild card that I'm insisting we cover. Does Jordan Peterson have a case? Okay. This is my favorite story of the week. This is just, this is uh, uh, this is the best. Okay. So I-, I know you're not a huge comic book fan. I'm a zero comic book fan. I- I've I know. seen some of the I- movies. I have never read a comic book. I don't uh, even know what they are. Yeah. All right. So the Red Skull is a Captain America villain, right? He is he is the Joker to Captain America's Batman. Like that's how important he is. And he is a literal Nazi. And when I say a literal Nazi, I mean he got his nickname the Red Skull <laughs> from Hitler. Right? It was we got in words the for people like you back home. <laughs> We're already comfortable being called Nazis. I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some exactly. Morty humor there. Right. <laughs> I've actually seen that clip. Uh, oh, not- it's so good. <laughs> All right. Um, so Adolf Hitler gave him the nickname that he wears proudly. He wears the swastika on his chest. Okay. So yeah. also, uh, we both know uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? Sure. Um, he wrote the seminal article, The Case for Reparations. He is also a longstanding writer for Marvel Comics, right? So he wrote on uh, Black Panther, consulted on the movie, which I, I think you've seen, which is excellent. Yeah, right? I like, like the Black, movie. Black Panther's really, really good. Michael B. Jordan was right, but yeah. Well, that's what got makes the villain wrong. Yeah. That's what makes Black Panther so so good. So uh, Tanahasi Coates has also been writing for Captain America since 2018, and on the just released Captain America Volume Nine, number tw- issue number 28, March 31st is released. The Red Skull goes on his YouTube channel to preach his <laughs> Ten Rules for Life, as well as Chaos and Order and the Feminist Trap. Uh, and the speech, I, I love this more than anything. The, the, the speech, I, okay, so you, you have you have these these two bits that are just amazing. When they show Red Skull monologuing, 
his speech about like, you know, you, the American male have been, you know, ground underfoot and like women mm-hmm. have been charged to do your jobs. But but I offer you the sword of manhood. Okay, <laughs> That's how that speech ends. And then uh, watching that is Captain America. He's talking to a police officer and he says, look, it's the same for all of them. They're young men. They're weak. They're looking for purpose. I found the flag. You found the badge. They found the skull. He tells them what they've always longed to hear, that they're secretly great, that the whole world is against them, that if they're truly men, they'll fight back. And bingo, that's their purpose. That's what they live for. And that's what they'll die for. And so Jordan Peterson has just found this out. And I need to say, I need to say this, even though it pains me. Jordan Peterson has had a good sense of humor about this. I really, really, really wanted him to go James Lindsay, you know, just freak out. And uh, yeah. uh, Jordan Peterson has, has, has been funny about it, right? Like he's <laughs> tweeted out like the Hydra logo with a lobster. On, like it, it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. Like uh, that, that kills me. But his fanboys do not disappoint, right? Like his, if you go read over on the Jordan Peterson's tweets, every third one is, well, I can't wait until Dr. Peterson, you know, sues Marvel into non-existence. Yeah. By the way, like yeah, way, way to prove you're not easily triggered snowflakes. Mm-hmm. So the case closed here. This is not defamation. This is not a copyright violation. Parodying a public figure's works uh, is within the core of what you assholes who claim to be pro-free speech should find to be free speech. And uh, I want to paraphrase Ooh, apocryphal. Right. Andrew getting a little hot under the <laughs> collar. I like it. I ah. come after his comic books, and that's that's what'll do it. <laughs> so there, there was a line credited to uh, philosopher Jeremy Waldron about um, about Robert Nozick because. Late in his life, Nozick, somebody who I've I've met, I've attended lectures from, uh, you know, brilliant philosopher, wrote yeah. Anarchy, State, and Utopia, um, and then like sort of spent the next thirty years, spent the rest of his life like kind of living down the fact that he was the Anarchy, State, and Utopia guy, and like actually wrote that, like wrote a long essay in a book called Socratic Puzzles that says Anarchy, State, and Utopia was an accident. Like I never really meant to be associated with these fringe libertarian nut jobs. That like this is kind of bothering me, right? Um, wow. And and Michael Waldron. Is is said? I can't find this anywhere. I've I've looked for it to have quipped like, well, if Professor Nozick is concerned that uh, his views put place him in rather nasty company, he should reflect that they are, uh, upon close examination, rather nasty views. Uh, and 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 I like to shorten that down to Professor Peterson. Perhaps you shouldn't have ideas that appeal to Nazis. So <laughs> if the skull fits, if the skull, oh my God, that is beautiful. If the skull fits, I love it. So there you go. Case closed. Uh, Jordan B. Peterson is Adolf Hitler's best friend and there's <laughs> nothing you can do about it. JBP fans. And thank you. And now it's time to thank our new patrons at patreon.com slash law. Hope you're enjoying all the stuff. We got a ooh, lot of movies coming in another, let's see, a week or so. You know, we usually try to get it right around the 15th. So can't wait for that. I mean, if it's even half as good as Cop Rock, then then <laughs> <laughs> if even half to... of this is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's thank our new patrons. And it's my turn to go first. So thank you to Debbie Doxy, Katie Evans, Felix Napichnig, Segarath, Shannon Haleman. Elfie, Chase Jones, I Don't Have a Scoop Name. Oh, is that a crossover uh, patron? Zach and Aaron Lieb, your turn. All right. And (laughs) thank you for this list, Thomas. I will (laughs) never forget it. Thank you, too. Epistemic humility sounds like you know you're right, but you're being humble. Would you consider epistemic modesty? Former talking (laughs) pirate bird. And I guess that's it, folks. No more thank yous. We're disbanding the podcast. Thanks for your time. Uh, that is actually another thank you. So uh, th- th- contradicted yourself, but great name. Thanks to Carol Nadeau, Christopher Ibanez. Will you take an undergrad intern? Um, c- can't really do that, but 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 thank you. <laughs> Thanks to no Zorbling at this Garknax has ever porked the Gleebel exam. That's amazing. Nice. Thanks to Lester Power. To TBD, I, hey, you know, you, you do it. And thanks to, and I really have to read this, Ik Wudat, Ik Twihanjus, Was Dan Khan, Ik Salmon Spellen. No so, idea. So, 
uh, yeah, none. That I I could have just said like literally the most offensive thing on earth in you could I, have I said know, like Dutch? oh no zorbling at this gargnax has ever pork the glegal example for example <laughs> that was a fantastic one i'm still loving that, that. was that I was made. really good anyway <laughs> thanks to all of you if you would like to make me say ridiculous things head on over patreon.com slash law give us literally one american dollar there was no better use for your entertainment than oh uh, and fyi patreon that. even has the other currencies now like you so oh, you yeah. could give us an australian dollar although i think it's a little bit less so you have to give us like an australian dollar 50 or something but yeah fyi it's not just american currency yeah you could give us greek drachme you could you know who knows right yeah i can also name other current i can't uh, euros yeah <laughs> euros there we are yeah. we, we will take euros uh i don't <laughs> think the greeks use the drachme anymore i think they they only use the the euro but i don't know but uh if you have currency and it is yeah. legal tender we will accept it oh no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam no kidding and now it's time for T3BE, failure time. Here we go. Another another boulder. Son of, I gotta just, but uh, instead of, it's not really, I'm not even Sisyphus. I'm, I'm Sisyphus if the boulder rolled down, just flattened me every time. And then I gotta get up and just get flattened by another boulder. That is that Sisyphus? I, there's no pushing involved. Okay, here we go. I honestly thought you might like break into tub thumping by Chumbawamba there. But anyway, here we go. Thomas. A 50-year-old nurse who had been fired from his job at the hospital told his attorney, I was fired because of my age, and I want to sue the hospital. Based on this information, the attorney filed an age discrimination complaint against the hospital in federal court. As it turned out, the hospital had hired a 52-year-old man as the nurse's replacement, (laughs) the fact that rendered an age discrimination claim unavailable. The hospital responded to the complaint by filing a motion for sanctions against the nurse's attorney. Wow. Is the court likely to grant the hospital's motion? Oh, my gosh. A, no, because sanctions are not proper against the attorney of a represented party. Hmm. B, no, because the hospital failed to give the attorney the chance to withdraw the complaint in advance of filing the motion with the court. Hmm. C, yes, because the nurse's attorney failed to conduct a reasonable pre-filing inquiry, or D, yes, because the nurse's complaint contained legal contentions that were not warranted by existing law based on the facts of this wow. case. Wow. I think based on the fact that Sidney Powell still exists, <laughs> I'm kind of leading toward a no answer, but maybe I shouldn't let that bias my answer. This is I don't know that we've ever had a question about this kind of thing, about like sanctions against the lawyer, have we? In our 220, I don't remember one. We have so. not. This is, this is a, a first. new one. Okay. So I'm going to just do what I think is reasonable. Um, sanctions. That's that's not the same as being disbarred, you know? So I know it's not just for messing with client funds. <laughs> okay. So nurse, so, th- so the nurse essentially tells the attorney, I was fired because of my age and I want to see the hospital. Now let's see what the attorney actually did. Filed an age discrimination complaint against the hospital in federal court. Okay. As it turned out, the hospital had hired a 52-year-old man as a nurse's replacement, a fact that rendered an age discrimination claim unavailable. So the lawyer has now filed something that is not available. Yeah, that, I mean, that seems pretty bad, but but it doesn't seem like, you know, I, I, I don't know. This this sounds like a little bit of negligence, a little bit of light lawyer negligence, but I... I if uh, sanctions feel a little rough, like that feels a little bit, you know, harsh, but who knows? Hospital responded to the complaint by filing a motion for sanctions against the nurse's attorney. So they go to sanctions right away. Okay. A, no, because sanctions are not a pro- not proper against the attorney of a represented party. That sounds like nonsense to me. If the exam is porked, it'll be that, but I don't, I, that sanctions are not proper against the attorney of a represented party. I, that doesn't make any sense. That's. I'm pretty sure that is what they are proper for. I don't I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. B, no, because the hospital failed to give the attorney the chance to withdraw the complaint in advance of filing the motion with the court. That seems reasonable to me. Like B seems pretty solidly reasonable. I, I think that what from what you've described in, you know, in, in your interactions with the judge and the court and the other side, like I feel like there's a, hey, why don't you go ahead and withdraw this? you know, before you you get sanctions slapped on you. Like you made an oversight, you should have investigated a little bit and you didn't. 
I don't know. B is what I'm leaning strongly towards. C, yes, because the nurse's attorney failed to conduct a reasonable pre-filing inquiry. I mean, maybe uh, that sounds pretty, you know, like sounds reasonable. It could be that. D, yes, because the nurse's complaint contained legal contentions that were not warranted by existing law based on the facts in this case. Oh, I think that's too broad. I, I think that like D would mean there'd be a whole lot of sanctions flying around, you know, like that's, that feels like a pretty broad legal contentions that were not warranted by existing law. Nah, no way. That that's too broad. I think I'm between B and C and this is how this all turns out. You know, I pretty much, except for that one, I totally blew. It's usually between two and then I pick the wrong one. Um, no, because the hospital failed to give the attorney the chance to withdraw the complaint in av- in advance of filing the motion with the court. Or is it just, sorry, you should have conducted this reasonable pre-filing inquiry. <sighs> so how, how, how lenient are our courts? I don't know. I feel like you give them the chance. I, I'm going to go with B. I could, oh, I could see it being C. I'm between B and C. I could, I could see an argument for C, like, you got to do this thing. You didn't do this thing. Sanctions. I also could see, you know, you give them the chance to, to say whoopsie, you know, whoopsie daisy. I feel like a, a takes these backsies whoopsie daisy and something like this is, is reasonable before you get sanctioned. So I'm going to go with B. That's my answer. Could be C, but I'm going with B. <laughs> All right. And if you want to play along with Thomas, you know how to do that by now. Just share out this episode on social media. Include the hashtag T3BE. Include your guess, your reasons. Therefore, we will pick a winner and shower that winner with never-ending fame and fortune. Fame and fortune not guaranteed. And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, that was a lot of fun. We got deep dives. We got we got heady stuff. We got important issues with the Chauvin trial. And we got a Jordan Peterson Red Skull. But that had everything, Andrew. That episode, I think we... We did it. We 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 squeezed everything that's critical key OA into one show. That was a lot of fun. I I had a lot of fun too, and uh, hopefully the listeners did as well. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge, and I'm the law talking guy. This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com law. If you can't support us financially, it would be a big help if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to join the Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Yodel Mountain and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. This podcast podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, all rights reserved. It is produced with the assistance of transcriptionist Heather Loveridge, production assistant Ashley Smith, and additional contributions from Morgan Stringer and Deppa Smith. Special thanks to Teresa Gomez, who runs our live shows and heads up the OA Wiki. Follow at OA Wiki on Twitter. Additional thanks to the moderators of the Opening Arguments Facebook community, Emily Waters, Alicia Cook, Eric Brewer, Natalie Newell, Brian Ziegenhagen, and Teresa. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith, who edits the show and created the fabulous theme music, which was used with permission. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.